0: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz and with me today is the Editor-in-Chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine, Phil Walker. There's a new issue of that out now. And England and Lancashire leggy, Matt Parkinson. Matt, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to have you on. How have you found the lockdown so far?
2: Yeah, um, hasn't hasn't been t- too bad actually. Um, like I said, I've done done m- more running in the past five weeks than I'd, than, I'd, than I'd like to do again really. and Yeah, it's been tough and I think it's been tough tough for everyone and didn't actually miss cricket too much to start with, but uh, five, five weeks in now, and I'm I'm, I'm starting to, to, to miss it a lot. Really, have you been practicing your bowling at all? Uh, not really. I've done a little bit against the wall uh, outside my flat with a tennis ball, and um, yeah, just trying to tick over. Really, um, obviously fortunate to have had the cricket that I had this winter, and um, I think my my workloads over over the winter were, were decent. So. Fingers crossed when cricket does
1: resume and I haven't, I haven't lost too, too, too much sharpness from then. Matt, I found last night that I was shadow batting about half one in the morning without even realising that I'd done it. Um, have you been shadow batting much? Are you constantly still involved, involved with the game and, and you can't quite let it go? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I do much shadow batting. Yeah, it'd be more shadow bowling for me really. But
2: um, yeah, like I said, I didn't, I didn't miss it too much to start with. Um, first couple of weeks back at home were nice just to switch off and, and get get away from cricket. Um, but yeah, as the lockdown period's gone on and there isn't really an end in sight, I've I've started to miss it more and I've found myself watching sort of old YouTube clips and um, I've been fixed on, on Sky Sports cricket really.
0: What have you been watching on YouTube? Uh, it's
2: a bit of a battery one really. Um, I watch a lot of like, you know, the YouTube Championship highlights, the 14 minute specs like the highlights from the from the four days in sort of one video Um, and yeah i find myself watching them like it's not even games that i'm in it's just like i'll see a headline like stevens 230 and i'm like oh i'll watch that and i find myself watching like a 14 minute clip of kent (laughs) and i'm like i really need to have a a look at what what i'm doing here (laughs) Um, but no yeah that's just the way i do it and i think apart from that and The odd bit on Sky, I've tried to sort of stay busy away from cricket. So doing, like I said, some running and trying to gym a little bit. But um, yeah, watching Netflix and stuff. And and I've I've actually ordered ordered some books to read for the first time in my life. So um, yeah, trying to stay active in cricket whilst also trying to find some, some things outside of it as well.
0: Excellent. For the first time in a while, we've got a bit of cricket news to talk about. The first season of the 100 has officially been postponed for a year. The ECB have cited operational challenges caused by social distancing, ongoing global travel restrictions, making the competition's ambition to feature world-class players and coaches unattainable this year. Phil, the news doesn't come as a huge surprise, does it?
1: No, it was um, an open secret, really, I think, in the game, that this was inevitable. It was unavoidable. Um, And it's probably hard to argue with the, the sense of it it's also hard to get the to escape the sense that this tournament is jinxed. You know, it, it it came in in a whirlwind. People were confused by it. Some were intrigued, some were appalled. Um, we had the the all singing, all dancing launch. Of course, Matt would have been a part of that, of course. And uh and now we have this, you know, and it's a cliche now to call it an unprecedented situation, but I think all that considered the hundred had to had to go it would have been completely back to front i think to launch a tournament that has been predicated specifically on getting bums on seats and creating a buzz inside the ground you can't launch a tournament like that uh, behind closed doors it would have been completely arse about face so i think i think the pragmatic decision has been made tom harrison's quotes are quite bullish they're quite uh, um yeah defensive in a way i suppose um he says that the need for the hundred is more pronounced now than it's ever been that the hundred the hundred is now more central to the ecb's policy and philosophy of growing the game this inspiring generation strategy that they talk so so zealously about well he believes and he's staking his reputation on it really that the 100, as he says, quote, will create millions in revenue for the game through hosting fees, hospitality, ticket sales, and 25 million in annual financial distributions to all the counties. So that's a direct quote from from Tom Harrison today. Uh, The tournament was not expected to deliver a profit for the first five editions of it anyway. So considering that it was going to be a long-term profit-making game, brackets if it ever does make a profit it would have been peculiar in the extreme to have launched it this year so it makes sense that they've held it back um i think it's a smart move from a pr perspective as well as pragmatically smart and i think i think it it enables now the season whatever is going to be left of it to be opened up to the the kind of feel good accessible cricket that the fans the punters really want and need which is you know, a full-scale Vitality Blast tournament. And, of course, as a little bit of county cricket, first-class cricket, if, if if possible. But, obviously, you know, a condensed but still singing all dancing international summer. And let's hope that we can get a good two, two months, two and a half months of cricket from some point in July onwards. The mood music suggests that we will get cricket from July onwards, but we'll have to wait and see. Even in
0: a worst-case scenario, there have been a couple of suggestions this week and last week that... Part of the county season in particular could take place overseas in a country like the UAE where they haven't really been as affected as badly as we have with with COVID-19. Matt, would you be against playing county matches overseas or are you just desperate to play cricket wherever, however? I
2: think if you asked any cricketer um, with the offer to play cricket in Dubai for a few few weeks, I think they'd be, they'd be lying if, if, if they said no. Um, if it does drag out and we don't play as much cricket, then yeah, I think I'd be open to anything really. And if that's possible to um, to make happen, and there is a, an option to go play, I know a few rounds of championship cricket in Dubai or or Abu Dhabi, or, or I think I've seen Australia and New Zealand banded about as well a bit. Um, so yeah, I think just the chance to to play cricket um, after potentially a very a very long break will be awesome and. Um, yeah, playing in those conditions is, is great, great for, for, for learning as well.
0: On, on the 100, how exciting is the 100 as a competition for you as a player? The opportunity to play in a high-quality league, on home soil, packed full of international stars?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously, when it does go ahead, it'll be fantastic. And um, you probably do look on a bit enviously at the IPL and, and the Big Bash and the PSL. And although the Vitality Bash is an unbelievable competition, you don't get the likes of Steve Smith playing in that, or Andre Russell, um, and I think that was the main selling point for me. And I've, I've answered a lot of questions about the hundred, and my main point on it is to attract those those sort those players um, that wouldn't normally come to play in the blast. Is I think the main main difference between the hundred, um, and I agree with what's been said. I don't think you can play the hundred without without those big names. And um, I think the blast is. A very high high standard T Twenty tournament and um, that promotes in, English talent um, and with the hundred I think that that was obviously the difference to have those sort of superstars super playing in it and without them um, and without the chance of big crowds I don't think there's any point in, in, in launching it as as Phil said for
0: for a lot of the players who haven't had a taste of international cricket yet um, even players that have played international cricket there's a lot of money to be earned in the hundred was there was there a buzz among Players who weren't established international stars about when they when they found out about the profile of the tournament, the caliber of players involved, and also the money that was involved with it.
2: Yeah, again, I think you'd be lying if, if you said you didn't. Um, to have the chance to earn the money that's on offer for, for five weeks is, is fantastic, and um, I think again, it, you don't want to say think about the money, but lots of people do, and obviously the. You're hoping that the profile of the tournament as well. Um, obviously, everyone talks about, about the IPL and um, you almost don't really talk about the money in the IPL just purely because of how good good the, uh, the tournament is. And I think that's what the players were also keen about with the 100 is playing with new teams, new players, um, a new tournament. And yeah, the chance to rub shoulders with superstars and play in some uh, um, unbelievable matches um,
1: was probably the main selling point. Matt, could I could I just ask you? Um, we in in Wisden Magazine for for the last year or so, we've we've ran an anonymous article with uh, a secret cricketer, right? Who is a current county cricketer playing um, good good quality county cricket as we speak, and he's he's written about the hundred for us, and he spoke of elements of dissent in county dressing rooms that he's witnessed and heard about, and he voices concerns that it might create a kind of a, a jealousy and an envy and a kind of a two-tiered tension in county cricket between the haves and the have-nots. Now, this might be his own personal concerns, sure, but do you have you sensed any of that yourself? And do you sense that that could be a concern going down the line? Um, yeah, I've never really thought
2: about it, but I know personally I haven't experienced any, any of that. I know... Especially my own team, Lancashire. We were all very happy for the lads that got picked, and the boys that didn't get picked. I think see it as a a way of like a stepping stone, something to aim for. And their main focus was still on winning, winning troph- trophies for Lancashire, which is everyone's focus, of course. But um, again, with the amount of quality foreign players that are coming in, and the limited number of teams, there's only a certain number of players that are going to get picked. And, yeah, I think in my experience, like I said, um, my, my teammates are bit, very ha- happy
1: for, 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 the, for the players that got picked. Yeah. And Just just on something else as well. Your boss, Paul Allett, um, who I know pretty well, I spoke to him maybe the start of last summer, I think it was. And he'd just been involved in a Lancashire AGM at Old Trafford. And the question was put to the members of your club, who's in favour of the hundred. And you can guess what came next. No one put their hand up. And then, when the question was who was against it, everyone did. So, I don't know. Can you understand county members' concerns, reservations about maybe the, I don't know, the threat that the hundred may pose to the status quo of the eighteen model county county uh, system?
2: Um, yeah, I can
1: see some people's thoughts on that. And
2: um, again, I've, I've thought I've been asked this question a lot, and. My view has stayed the same, really, is when T20 first came about, I I reckon there was a similar thought from most members. Um, Was it 2003 that T20 started? It was, yeah. 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 Obviously, I was only seven then. So I'm guessing the members back then had a similar viewpoint to the T20, that it's an absolute farce and we should stick to the two competitions. We don't need any more cricket. They play enough cricket, blah, blah, blah. If the competition's good, people will watch it. And with the quality of cricketers that are going to be involved in the competition, you'd be silly not to watch not to watch the game. People might have reservations now, but they had reservations about T20 in 2003. And I reckon most members enjoy some form of 2020 cricket. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the member that doesn't back the 100 is going to see it in five, six years' time. I still get asked this question about 2020 cricket at some Sort of Q and As um, from members that are still not not in favour of a three format domestic season. So I think as
1: time goes on and
2: people see the quality of the competition, they'll start to come around. I would I would hope.
1: Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo that. Um, it, it's also quite telling, I think, that a lot of a lot of folks who are against this and publicly against this believe, I don't know, that cricket. Cricket is is the cent the epicenter of the of the universe, and that everything revolves around cricket. Well, the reality is, and this is where the ECB's thinking originated from. And I've spoken on the show about this before. The the research was out there. They they surveyed thousands of kids in the UK and found that five percent of kids aged between six and fifteen considered cricket in their top two favorite sports. So it's not just that football dominates and cricket second. Only five percent even put it in their top two. Three out of five kids didn't even put it in their top 10. So it wasn't even a game that was even something that they'd even heard of for 60% of, of kids in the UK. It was those numbers which, are, which prompted this. And, and I do find it a little frustrating when people uh, decry the idea of the 100 because it stemmed from something of a crisis point for the game, really. And, and, and those numbers are, were so terrifying, and rightly so. But the ECB thought they had to do something radical. And we can argue the stuff about it, but those numbers are irrefutably terrifying and and something had to be done.
0: Absolutely. I remember a survey being done about how many kids knew of famous sportsmen in different sports and uh, WWE wrestlers, if you count that as a sport, were ahead of England cricketers. Matt, Phil's been a a long time supporter of yours on this show ever since we started he was banging the, the Matt Parkinson drum well before That's
1: it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> Always a fanboy. Phil,
0: Phil, what was it about Matt's bowling that caught your eye early on? Because you, you were, in fairness, talking about Matt probably before most other pundits were.
1: Uh, well, I, I saw him bowl on telly and he took three, uh, took a 4 for or it might have been a 3 for. And there was something about the way that he, he went about his business that that grabbed me i'd also heard heard the name i mean he'll tell you himself he's not backward and coming forward is is matt parkinson but he was he was well known as a kid as well as a teenager coming through and whenever an englishman picks up a cricket ball and turns it from leg to off then you start to watch that a little bit more closely because it's so unusual because it's so rare and because it's so bloody difficult there's so few that have pulled it off before um i go back I go back to Ian Salisbury, who who carries this sort of tag of being, in inverted commas, a failure because he wasn't successful at Test match level. Ian Salisbury took 1st class wickets bowling leg spin. It's hard to hard to to, to call a cricketer who's taken that number of first class wickets a failure, really. So so anyone who tries it immediately has my respect. And then when you watch. Parkinson himself, and I'm speaking like he's not even there. I can see his name on this laptop right there. I'm listening. Yeah, you are listening. I'm sure you are. Um, <laughs> but when you see somebody with with a bit of appetite for the fight, with with a little bit of now, and a bit of bit of bit of spunk, as 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 you might want to call it, and and you saw that as a 20 year old when he was playing for Lancashire. I spoke to Paul Allen early on, and he said, "Well, he's already our best white ball bowler." Spoke to Saqib Mahmood about him last year and he said, well, I think he's already the best white ball bowler in the country. And then you start to to wonder and then you start to let your imagination run wild with it. And then you start to wonder not only if the if the kid can, can have a say with England in white ball cricket, but maybe, just maybe, he might end up in due course, maybe two years, maybe three years, maybe two months, who can say? But one day might even be the answer that we've always been looking for, a Red ball test match leg spinner uh, who, who who deserves his spot in that setup and might actually make a difference because we've had a, the, odd, the odd pretender in the past, but no one's ever quite cracked it. I'm also a hopeless romantic and totally one-eyed, you know, but everybody knows that as well.
0: Matt, how slash why did you become a leg spinner in the first place? Tough one, actually, to answer. Um, I
2: remember bowling this, I wouldn't call them off spinners, they were more just, lobs really um when I was about seven and then when I was at school my dad came in to coach a bit the school team and he was a leg spinner so I started bowling leg spin and I think I must have been okay and I remember lots of coaches and teachers telling me stop like you, you're never gonna be able to crack it, you won't do it. And we just thought, well we may as well and um, give it a crack so um, yeah, worked work with my dad a lot as a kid. Um, he was a decent club cricket of old googlies, couldn't really bowl a leggy. So yeah, worked work with him, and then yes, yeah, start, started playing adult cricket when I was I was quite young, I must have been eleven maybe, um, playing a bit of second team, and then yeah, probably had some good good captains when I was younger who bowled me more than I probably, probably deserved. And yeah, I just loved it. I can't say that Shane Warne was. Was an inspiration, so I think I was too young, really, to appreciate just how good he was. Um, and again, I quote, quote this a lot, but I'm Team McGill, obviously. But yeah, just obviously went through the age groups, and um, yeah, I was lucky enough to have some good coaches and um, managed to develop some some form of leg spinner, and then. Yeah, on on the Lancashire Academy, and then started playing a bit of sort of adult cricket. Um, had a fantastic year with, with Staffordshire, where I think it probably made me as a bowler really. Um, went from bowling at sort of kids who notoriously can't play spin to I think I was 16 or 17 playing a minor counties championship season and um, bowling 30 overs a game or even more. And um, yeah, that probably took took me from a level as a kid cricketer. To probably a decent enough leg spinner to to warrant maybe second team county appearances in a contract, but um, yeah, it all started from just yeah rolling the through le- leggies out with, with with my dad really.
0: Apart from your dad, did you get much specialist leg spin training when you were growing up? Because kids generally just get taught about seen up, seen so up when they're younger. Maybe a bit of very orthodox spin. So did you have to learn yourself a bit?
2: You do to a point. There's only so much obviously a parent can teach you and a lot of credit goes to Peter Such as well, the England uh, lead spin coach. Um, we we had a I'm not sure they still do it now, but it was the Brian Johnson Memorial Trust. Um we used to do it once a week and they used to get all the spinners in from, from the count from like the county age groups and we we just bowl. Um, and that probably includes, I don't know, maybe four professional bowlers now. That would be my brother, Matt Critchley and Matty McKinnon from Derby. So we had a good a good group. Um, and, yeah, probably that had a ma- massive impact as well, being in sort of direct rivalry with with three other decent spinners and trying to sort of make it onto the next level, getting the under-17s and stuff. So, yeah, I think, like I said, I had some good coaches growing up. you mentioned one, I had Ian Salisbury for a very brief period when I was under-17.
1: Um, and then, yeah, having luckily recently worked with Jason G- G- Patel as well. Matt, could I ask you, what what are the the overriding challenges to um not just wrist spinners but all all spinners really in England what how how do you crack four day cricket red ball cricket in England um and i speak to to you who's played a bit of red ball cricket but kind of not not an enormous amount yet you've done well when you have it's worth pointing out but what what What's the key to unlocking the secrets of bowling effective spin in England?
2: Um, well, if I knew, I'd be, I'd be doing it.
1: Looking at, obviously, the
2: other top spinners that um, perform in England, I think you have to play for one, for one, and that's something that's come up a lot when you discuss young English spinners. Um, obviously, the ones that come to mind, Mace and Bessie and, um, and Verdi, and you need to play, obviously, and bowl a lot of overs. Um which is what Jeet speaks speaks about as well. Um, I think you have to get the experience in in certain conditions. Um, I like I said when I've played, I've done well, but I probably haven't experienced all that English conditions have have to offer. And I'm obviously very fortunate to play at, at, um, at Old Trafford where it does. Spin. Um, yeah, I think just being backed and and playing probably a full couple of seasons of of domestic cricket and learning on the, on the job, really. Um, I don't think you can crack it if you're playing three or four games a year on, on spinners. and I think that's what I've done. I've played 20 games, 21 games or something since 2016. So, yeah, I think that's... If you're asking me for my opinion, I think it's we have to play more. But then again, it's up to us to get selected and be being the best team. And, and that's obviously down to us and it's also down to the conditions
1: as well. Have you been knocking on the coach's door and the... the you know, and Paul out its door and so on and saying, last summer, hold on, fellas, you know, why, why aren't I playing a little bit more four-day cricket? Um,
2: yeah, I did. Um,
1: I almost went on loan a couple of times, to be fair, but
2: it just sort of fell through. Yeah, I did. Uh, it was tough because in Division 2, the games weren't really lasting much past sort of lunchtime on day three. Um, yeah. We have a, fanta- a fantastic scene bowling group at, at Lancashire that's only, only getting better. So, it was tough to knock on when the team was winning in like three days. Yeah. Um, right. Which is a massive problem because I think for me last year, I got, especially early on, I got stuck a bit and I wasn't getting anything out of second team cricket. Um, and I didn't just want to sit around like being 12th man. Yeah. So I was really sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place really. Um, and then I think and a couple more weeks and I reckon the season could have been a write off. Um but luckily, I obviously got selected in in July, I think it was, which again says says a lot. And then played the last four games. And um, but even after, I think I took ten against Sussex. I didn't play the next championship game. Right. Wow. Purely purely condition based, yeah. which I understood, and there's nothing against anyone. It was at Col- we played at Colwyn Bay. It's tiny, and I think we bowled first, and we had played like five seamers. So, and we had Maxwell,
1: mm-hmm. who.
2: Who's a miles better bowler than people think he is? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was probably says a lot about sort of my experiences in the past four years. Um, that my you don't know my record might might be weighted on on spinning pitches, but um, again, you can only play what's in front of you. You can only play when you get selected.
0: When Phil interviewed you last year for for Wisden Cricket Monthly, you said something quite interesting about being a young leggy. You said that it's tough because. When you're younger, you get a lot of success just because kids can't play decent leg spin. Do you think there's an element of that in the gap between county cricket and international cricket? Simon Harmer said last year that he doesn't think there are many good players of spin in England, for example.
2: Um, yeah, I think Harmer is obviously a fantastic bowler. And I think he's played enough international cricket to and first-west cricket to have an opinion on that. Um, I don't think I've played enough of either to to really have a proper opinion. I think white ball cricket, I've obviously only played four games for England, but 50-year-old cricket was hard compared to domestic cricket, obviously. That's a very easy statement. But yeah, the pitches were were just seen a bit better. and It's very easy to say, but the players were a lot better. So you you found that with that extra man up, it was so difficult. Whereas I think sometimes in Royal London, Sometimes you don't even worry about having that extra man up in 10 to 40 because you don't think many players are going to fine sweep you or run down and hit you over cover. Um, that was my one thought in South Africa. I thought wherever I brought a man up in the periods 10 to 40, they could hurt me. Um, that's probably my only observation really. T20 cricket, obviously it went quite well in New Zealand, so I probably don't have a, a real opinion on on that on the bridge between Domestic cricket and international cricket, but yeah, you would say the batters are better. Well, you'd, you'd hope they were better. Um, but yeah, my, in my experiences in domestic cricket, I've I've never thought anyone's a bad player of spin. I just haven't bowled at enough players. I don't think.
0: What was it like coming straight into a dressing room led by the World Cup winning captain? What was he like with um, newcomers? You no, know, he was
2: awesome, um, and it helped in New Zealand that there was a decent group of us that were were fresh players. I think it was six of us, five of us, and yeah, the whole group was fantastic. Um, got the whole group got got on really well, and I think they saw that in sort of a, a good a good series victory, um, and that obviously set up. I think the main thing when you're playing in a new team is if you perform well, then you feel like you're accepted. And I was obviously went okay in New Zealand, so I went to South in that environment, the white ball environment with uh, with confidence, and you feel like these players have seen seen you perform well and. And obviously, they, they, it'd be it, fine to be there, really. Um, probably the Red Ball stuff took took longer to feel that. Um, but yeah, the whole group, the Red Ball group and the White Ball group, it's so, so easy to go, go into. Um, there's no real like senior boys, younger boys. It's just one one big group, really.
0: You found out about your call up in quite bizarre circumstances, right? You you were on the field and somebody got a notification on an Apple. Watcher I got in trouble for
2: that. That should never have come out. Looking back. Yeah, um, you could still, I don't think you can now, but back then you could still wear like your Apple Watch on the field if it's non televised or like a Garmin watch, couldn't um, And yeah, I was bowling to my brother and Crofty, they all came up with big smiles on the face and sh- shut my hand. And I, obviously I didn't know anything about it. And Saki had already found out like an hour before because he wasn't playing. So yeah, Crofty came up with a big, big smile on his face, sh- shut my hand, and then I finished my over. Walked down to final leg and Saki and all the coaches are on the balcony clapping. Um, so then, yeah, Saki ran down and told me which squads I was in. So I, I had a hope that I'd be in the white ball squad, but again, after you played four games and had a decent white ball season, you don't think that warrants an England selection. Um, so, yeah, it was a massive shock and, and, yeah, very odd way to find out, but I don't think I'd change it. Um, it was awesome to have my brother. My brother was at the non-strikers end batting when Crofty told me so some things like that are, like me- are meant to happen I think um so yeah that I- was awesome and um, sort of a, na- a nice end to a tough summer.
0: And then in-, in South Africa before the start of of the test series you copped a little bit of criticism from people who hadn't actually seen you bowl for how you went in the in the warm-up games what what was that like?
2: Um yeah it was tough I hadn't really experienced the media scrutiny that comes with an England tour and um, the New Zealand tour was quite low key I thought um, in comparison and having done okay in the white ball I didn't really receive any negative press um, and then I didn't play in the test matches so there wasn't really any press to write about and um, so yeah it shocked me a bit that people who weren't there were writing these articles almost writing you off really Um and I didn't actually bowl that badly. I remember this lad just smacked it. <laughs> this, this big South African man just whacked it. Um, and yeah, that was a massive setback really on that trip for me. Um, probably my chance to show that Yeah, I'd learned I'd a bit under Jeeps and um, that, that I'd improved since I first came into the environment, which I thought I had at the time. Um, but when you get two for 110 off 20 in a Red Bull warm-up game, um doesn't look really It doesn't look great. And I actually bowled quite well in the next warm-up game, but I think from that moment on, I was—I'll was start of running, running uphill really. Um, but yeah, I like to think that when I got to Sri Lanka, they saw sort of how how I can perform and um, that the results can come.
0: Does that almost make the the cancellation of the Sri Lanka tour all the more frustrating? Because you you did all right in the in the warm-up games there, and there's a reasonable chance of you playing as well.
2: Yeah, you, you don't know, obviously you're going to play and. Um, But yeah, I like to think that unlike the staff tour, I actually gave myself a good chance of being selected um, in the two, the one and games I played. Um, And that's probably the one thing that I'll I'll take away from it, that um, I did did everything that I possibly could in the short time that we were there. Um, It's just a shame, obviously, that things have unfolded the way they have because obviously you never know what what selection could have been like. Um, But fingers crossed, I I get a chance in the future.
0: Something listeners might not know about your development is that you were part of um, a U team at Lancashire that has seen quite a few of you go on already to play not only counter cricket, but international cricket um, at a very young age. So yourself, Sakib Mahmood, Haseeb Mead, Josh Bahannon, your twin Callum, Harry and What was it like coming through an age group where obviously you guys were, were, were very successful? Was it clear that there were quite a few special talents? Yeah, it was.
2: Um, I was probably one of the slower ones to develop, really. Um, it took me to probably like under thirteens to become one of the probably the senior players in that age group side, and um, yeah, we had a fantastic team and, and still a great a great bun- bunch of friends, with it, which is nice as well. Um, but yeah, we were we were on softball really from the age of I'm not twelve or thirteen. Um, we had a, a lad who's a pro footballer as well now. He was captain. Um, Mark Waddington he's played for Blackpool I think in Stoke but um, he was a fantastic cricketer as well and I think the rest of the team were probably all league professionals now Um, we had an unbelievable team and we struggled to get probably a challenging game um, which is why most of us ended up playing a little bit of the under 16s and 17s but then we moved up to the second team and, and that's why I ended up playing Staffordshire minor counties because the squad was that good that we struggled to get any real challenging game. Um, this is literally going back to under 11s. I think we only lost two games in about six years. So um, yeah, you could tell that group was special, and I think it says a lot that I think Josh Panham must have been like he must have been number six batter, and he's he's batting three for Lancashire now. So the depth we had was amazing, and um, yeah, there's some there's some great players that didn't that didn't even make it professionally that are still still playing now.
0: At 13, who who were the stars in that team? Uh, stars?
2: Uh, obviously, Hasib stood out from the age of nine or nine, really. Um, he didn't actually play with us that much um, until under-15s, maybe, he came back. and um, He was always playing the, the one year above us, which I think, in part, was to accommodate the lads that were too good not to be in the squad, if you get what I mean. So there was lads that wouldn't have been selected if Haas was was playing with us. Um, so he stood out and still stands out to me now, but he was um he was a fantastic young player and um, he obviously went on to play for England not long after we finished playing the age group cricket really and um, and then yeah
0: what was that like you play for England so early did you guys did that catch you by surprise?
2: no, no, it didn't catch us by surprise at all um I think he so we were playing like under seventeen age group lancashire cricket and he was with us one week and then the next week he scored 300s in a week for England 19s. So I think that said a lot about sort of the, the golfing class between him and the rest of us, really.
1: Matt, did did Haas have to leave Lanx, do you think, for the good of his career in the end?
0: Uh,
2: yeah,
1: it's a tough one to answer, really. I'd love it if Haas was still a Lanx player, but
2: um, I think a change of scenery could do him good. And um, Yeah, he's a fantastic lad and to have done as well as he did um, there's definitely still an unbelievable player in there, and um, he was he was well, well liked at length, So the boys are all are all rooting for him to sort of do do well for Knots. And um, yeah, it's a shame that I won't be playing. I've played with Hass since I was
1: eight, maybe.
2: Um, so yeah, it'll be the first year that we're not in the same changing room. But no, I I, I, I wish wish him all all the best.
1: It'd be a good contest that in late late August if we do ever get any four day cricket. You you turning your arm over against Hassib Ahmed. I'd wrap it up and watch that one, I think, definitely. I'd direct the Bolton a, on a flat one. <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: Phil, as mentioned at the top of the show, there's a new magazine out. Yes, there is. Podcast listeners have a special offer for the digital version of the magazine, where you get your first three issues for just £2.99, which is, quite frankly, a steal. Head to bit.ly forward slash wisdom3 to get that offer. Phil, there's a, there's a fascinating in-depth feature in this issue. Do you want to explain what it is?
1: Yeah, well, obviously in the absence of any actual cricket to, to look upon, uh, and this has been planned in the planning for a few months anyway, we've done a root and branch assessment of where test cricket stands in the modern world. Um, test cricket's never been more squeezed, more threatened, but it's also, paradoxically, probably never been more sexy and watchable test crickets as a product is going through a great moment, but it's, but it's reputation is teetering on the edge somewhat. Um, and we all know why we all know the the power of the white ball game, we all know about the phenomenon of T20 and so on and so on. And so we, we, we conducted a number of interviews um, and commissioned a number of essayists as well to, to cover the various Uh, tentacles of Test cricket. But the the central part of it was a a round table that that we pulled together um, with a a list of of luminaries, let's say, from Michael Holding to Mark Butcher to Harsha Bogle to Chris Wokes and others. Um, All all around the world, we've got seven or eight different voices in there to try and chew the fat about the state of Test cricket. And it threw up some fascinating opinions. Um, It won't make easy reading, for Test cricket lovers, I don't think. Uh, We haven't pulled any punches, Um, but it's also, I think, an important time to do it because uh, we need to protect what we have now more than ever before. Uh, And while there are legitimate question marks around the the Test game's future, uh, there's also naturally an enormous amount of love, respect and protectiveness around the game. it was an interesting round table. This one, I come back to a few quotes, but Chris Wokes's comments were particularly revealing. I thought I asked him, uh, if you have to be a test player to be a great player today, to be considered among your peers to be a great player, do you need a good quality test record behind you? And he said, if he looks at players. Across the white ball formats, a large percentage of them are playing test cricket and have done well. But he thinks it's slowly changing that you don't have to have played test cricket to be regarded in that way as a top, top quality player. He says, as it stands, quote, players aren't classed as great unless they play test cricket. But you feel that that is changing. I just want to throw that over to you, Matt, really, because you're kind of right on the on on the cusp of this, really. You know, a lauded white ball bowler already still bearing your teeth in red ball cricket it would help if Lancashire picked picture a little bit more to give you a chance but where do you stand on that and and conversations that you have among your peers as well lads in their early 20s looking at the landscape looking at the money that you can earn through white ball cricket but also looking at the the pedigree that comes with being a red ball test cricketer where 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 is your generation leaning do you think in that question do you think you can pull it off do you think you can be just a white ball cricketer and and be recognised as one of the greats of your time? Or do you think you need a complete story to be recognised like that? How do you see it? Personally, um, I'm a bit of a purist. I, For me, I'd
2: want to do the whole lot, I think. Um, I would want to have a and a fantastic career in all formats. Um, and playing Test cricket is very important to me and it's a massive goal for me. Um, back to, obviously, the overall point, I think it is getting more where you can have a, be lauded as one of the greats of your era by just playing white ball cricket. Right. Um, you'd have to be unbelievably good at it and I think you would have to have exposure in a lot of the tournaments. And mm-hmm. uh, someone like Dwayne Bravo, no one really thinks about his test record. But he's probably one of the great white ball players of his generation. Um, yeah. Andre Russell, people like that. Um, and I think even more so for lads my age, I reckon it it, it can it can become like that. Um, and I think lads are probably not giving red ball cricket probably as long as they used to. Um, mm-hmm. Players are going to specialise earlier than they have done. And I don't think they'll be probably chastised as much now for doing it as when the first wave of players did it. And yeah, I think players can do that. And I think if they're good enough to just play a white ball cricket and be very successful, then I don't see any reason why they can't be lauded as a great player.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you bang on there. And, and I, don't, I don't doubt your sincerity on it either, having spoken to you about this a few times before. But there will be others, as you, as you rightly say, who won't be, and rightly so, won't be chastised for choosing um, to focus on white ball cricket and reject red ball cricket. Um, I just hope that they're honest about it, you know. Th- these lads coming through, I hope that they're, they're up front about it. There's a brilliant quote relating to this, and this doesn't apply to English cricket as any more or less than it applies to crickets from around the world. Probably, probably less so in England, to be honest. But there's a great quote from the, the, the Indian commentator in our magazine, Harsha Bogle, who, who says, in India, we used to have all these beauty competitions and the women would always say that the woman they most admired was Mother Teresa. And whether they knew whether anything about her was a different story. And they call it in India, the Mother Teresa effect. And he says, I hope people are not saying the same about Test cricket because it's the right thing to be heard saying. And, of course, away from, from the press and on, you know, behind closed doors, they're actually saying, well, I couldn't give two hoots about Red Bull cricket and Test match cricket. There has to be that hope that if Test cricket is going to survive into the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, then it's the players that will drive it. It's the players that hold the future of the game in their hands, really. Um, that's how it appears to me. Um, do you get that sense as well, Matt, that ultimately it will be generated by the players' love of the game? Yeah, I do. Um, and I agree with everything you've said there.
2: Um, I think the long, longer format cricket can, o- can only survive if probably my generation, the next generation to come, have a determination to play it and a determination to play test cricket. Um, I think the way the, Eng- the England team have played in all formats is is inspiring and I think the way obviously you saw the Ashes this year and the performances that were in it um, that can only inspire young players to want to play Test Cricket for England and I know it had a massive effect on me um, I used to watch the Ashes every, every, every uh, time down under um, and it's always been a driving point to play Test Cricket and I think if the England team continue to play in the way that we, they are doing then Test cricket will still be an ambition for 99% of young players um, and I think you have to be a very very special white ball talent to completely disregard red ball cricket um, and I don't think there are many of them about um, I still think that the vast majority of very good white ball players will want to commit to red ball cricket because we enjoy it um, people may whinge and moan a little bit but I know that every, most players that I play with love, love the championship and love Red Bull cricket. And there's no reason why, if you're a fantastic white ball player, you can't be a fantastic Red Bull player as well.
0: I think there's, a, there's an element of people not being totally realistic about uh, how feasible it is to actually be a, a great player in all three formats. I think, genuinely, I think Virat Kohli is the only person who is a great format player. Even Stokes has struggled in T20 cricket Absolutely. compared to the other
1: two.
0: Take that well, he, don't get me wrong, he's brilliant, but like compared to how he is in uh, the other two, he hasn't quite achieved the ridiculous heights he's achieved in ODI cricket, in Test cricket, and that's not criticising him. I think just being realistic about how, how hard it is to actually be genuinely world-class in all three formats, um, and to expect every young player to come through to aspire to be that is, is just unrealistic. Obviously, pe- people are going to be naturally better uh, one format than the other. I don't think there's anything wrong with young players coming through openly saying, I want to be the best T20 player in the world. I probably don't have the skill set to be the best test player in the world. And that, I think that's absolutely far.
1: Yeah, no, fair point. And, and Wokes touches on this as well in this round table. He said that the games have never looked more different than they do now. But they are diverging ever more white ball and red ball it's not two different games but they are two distinct games in a way certainly in a previous generation and especially in england we treated them all the same if you could play red Mm. ball cricket then you played the white ball team as well whether your skill set actually suited it or not so so undoubtedly we are we are at a very key moment i think for for the the carve-up of the professional game um but there are reasons to be cheerful as well You, you know you mentioned Kohli, and, and we talk about the power of players to make the case for the five day game. Well, Virat Kohli is a godsend, isn't he? Virat Kohli mm. demands that we respect Test cricket. And again, as Bogle says in this interview that we run, he says the thing with Kohli is that he recognises there is a legacy and a history to test cricket that he wants to protect and add to that he doesn't feel exists in T20 franchise cricket. So there is a deeper connection that Coley himself has with the cricket that he plays. And if the megastar feels like that and keeps banging that drum, then the game has a chance. It has more than a chance. Anyway, that was one of the many, many bits in this, uh, this stonker of a magazine. Um, we've, ran, we've run the test stuff over about 20, 22 pages, I think it was. Jonathan Liu has written a typically brilliant piece, um, we've brought in Dave Tickner as well to talk about the World Test Championship and how it's basically not fit for purpose. Good idea, badly done. The four-day debate as well, the four-day test debate, we've spoken to people from all around the world, and it's interesting what a different opinion is generated in the so-called lesser test nations to over in England. In England, we laugh at the notion of a four-day test match. And they're not laughing about that in Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, Ireland, West Indies, etc., etc. They're certainly not laughing about it out there. So it's an interesting feature from a different angle. Um, and all kinds, of, all kinds of other stuff. David Milan's given an excellent interview. Of course, he's moved up to Yorkshire, left Middlesex under something of a cloud. He's trying to rebuild his career. And, you know, there's an international cricketer in there. He's given a very revealing and good interview. Tanya Aldred has, has uh, revisited the climate crisis and how it will be impacting on cricket as well important work that first appeared in the Wisdom Almanac and we've decided to rerun this magazine. Um, I interviewed Nat Siver, probably the most naturally gifted female cricketer that England's ever produced Um, and we try and address as well the recreational game. We haven't spoken about the recreational game really yet on this show but as we try and figure out what the hell this summer is going to look like from a cricketing perspective, uh, we are cautiously optimistic that that Matt and the boys will be getting out there and playing some professional cricket, but but what about the the recreational player? What about the amateur player? The the mood music suggests that the chances of of us playing cricket, as in you and me, yes, are pretty slim this mm-hmm. summer. But we we are addressing those questions and trying to find a way through through the mess to see if there is a way that we can legitimately and morally and ethically fairly play some form of cricket at some point this summer. So we're asking those questions as well. It's, it's, a, it's a good one, this magazine. I say that every time, but this one's especially good. Not quite as good as the one that we stuck you on the front cover of, Matt, but, you know, this is a good magazine nonetheless. Absolutely.
0: A reminder for that ridiculous deal that's £2.99 for your first three issues digitally, head to bit.ly forward slash Wisdom 3 to get that offer. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been great having you on.
2: Oh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Great
0: Phil. Phil, thanks. Zimba. Yeah, pleasure. Yes, this has been the Wizard Cricket Weekly podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell a friend, and if you're feeling really kind today, feel free to leave us a five star review on the podcast app. Cheers.
1: Podcast
2: Network.